Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, it's very easy. And this is a trap I've fallen into many, many times. It's very easy to think about your meditation practice as being kind of quarantined to those minutes when you're dutifully sitting down with your eyes closed. But actually, the point is to turn your whole life into a practice. Now, that's the kind of cliche you often hear in meditation circles. You kind of turn your whole life into a practice. I want to be clear. This doesn't mean you have to be immaculately mindful at all hours of the day. That sounds, to me at least, like quite a chore Or as a friend of mine once said, it sounds like you're establishing a nanny state for the mind. Instead, what we're going to talk about in this episode is how to, in the words of my guest, make every part of your life more awesome. My guest today has a very broad, capacious understanding of the concept of practice. There's formal meditation practice, yes, but also movement practice, work practice, relationship practice, sleep practice, art practice, and more. It's really about the goal, which very few of us will ever fully attain, of turning everything you do into something intentional and illuminating. Jeff Warren is a frequent flyer on this show. He's also a close friend. He and I wrote a book together called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He's a longtime meditation teacher and the founder of something called the Consciousness Explorers Club, an amazing organization based in Toronto. And he is the co-host of an excellent new podcast called the Consciousness Explorers Podcast. He also refers to it as the Mind Bod Adventure Pod. You really should go check out this show. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. In every episode, he and his rather amazing co-host, Tasha Schumann, test out a new practice. Anyway, here on this podcast, in this episode, we talk about what it actually means to make your whole life a practice beyond the oft-verbalized cliche in meditation circles, how to connect with your baseline okayness, mindfulness of seeing koan practice, running as a practice, what Jeff means when he talks about being your own teacher, and how and why to make all of your practices social. As he says, it's all one nervous system. He'll unpack that expression for us. We're also going to spend quite a bit of time talking about something many of you have asked us to cover, practicing with ADHD, a condition with which Jeff has lived for many years. So he'll hold forth about that. We'll get started with My man, Jeff Warren, right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. 
Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Mr. Daniel, good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I should say welcome back to the show. You're a frequent flyer, which I'm happy about. I think I might be getting up there in the points department. Yes. The the rewards are basically nothing, so like, <laughs> exactly. don't get too excited. Oh, my friend, time spent with you. <laughs> A deep meditative practice all on its own, <laughs> continually coming back to principles of equanimity. <laughs> yeah. But enough about me. You had a chat with uh, the boss of this show. Gabrielle Zuckerman, and there was a a sentence you uttered in the course of that conversation, which made its way to me, which was, your whole life can be a practice. What do you mean by that? Okay, we're jumping right in. Well, okay, I guess this is what I mean. That typically we meditate, those meditators out there, we find a time in our day to do a meditation practice or every other day. And it's practicing how to exist. And we're trying to learn how to exist in a way that's more awake, open, and compassionate. And the benefits of that start radiating out slowly to other parts of our life. And there's sort of this sense in which we kind of just have faith that's happening. And we can be deliberate about applying the skills in action as well. So that's kind of, I think, the typical framework of how people think about practice. And I share that framework But I also think that we can be even more intentional about filling out the whole of our life with goodness. And what that looks like is getting interested in how every single thing that we do can become a practice. Not in this like boring, eat your vegetables kind of way, but in this really fascinating like, oh wow, in this area of my life, I can remove the suffering and increase the insight and joy. And it's just a question of learning a practice that kind of helps me do that. So for example, the practice of communicating with you. I could, it's true, just implementing simple skills of mindfulness, being more open, being more concentrated, these things are all going to help. But then there's also the value of like, say, learning from a nonviolent communication person or some other communication specialist about specific framings of how a conversation can happen, specific techniques of ways of making space or listening. And that's just one example. Another example, say, is falling asleep. I could just fall asleep or try to fall asleep or just sit there neurotically figure out about my worries. 
Or I can decide to make falling asleep practice. I can learn about good sleep hygiene. I can kind of ritualize falling asleep. I can maybe do a little protection practice before I fall asleep, something like that. Like there's no area of your life that you can't make more intentional and awesome by just learning some key practice rules or orientations around it. And I'm really interested in that as just part of a how to live a good life. That's what I mean by making your life a practice. And then I'll say one last thing about it. If you think of the first thing where all you ever do is the seated practice and you don't do anything else, it's sort of like the seated practice becomes this like volcano that's rising out of the sea. And it's like it starts to get higher and higher and more and more of your life starts to feel connected to that practice. And that's totally one way to go. But another way to go is to like make lots of little volcanoes. So you have maybe your volcano, your sitting practice in the center, but you have lots of other little volcanoes and they're all slowly rising out of the water. And very slowly that archipelago of tiny separate islands becomes a single unified landmass of more awesomeness and clarity and openness and intentionality and joy and free flow. And I'm interested in how to help human beings do that and doing that myself. So there was a phrase you used in there. I love everything you just said. The phrase you used was, there's no part of your life you can't make more awesome. I just, I love that. And I'm guessing, you know, but no, this is a semi-educated guess, that a lot of people that listen to the show are either meditators or aspiring meditators, but they're perhaps a lot of like one volcano people. And maybe that volcano really is quite pervasive in that you're integrating mindfulness and compassion into lots of things you do. But this more holistic, capacious understanding of turning everything into a practice, that's really interesting to me. I think there's something very joyful about it, that it's a kind of form of existential play, that you don't have to just take this situation, take this part of your life, kind of, you don't have to be unconscious in it. You can actually begin to get interested in what's happening in it and begin to play with the dynamics in order to make them work out better. And I just think that's enormously, it's a very empowering message. It's been a very empowering message for me. And it's also been something I needed to hear, I guess, as someone who does have this ADHD struggle, I have an ADHD diagnosis, that my kind of furious curiosity about all these things, which can have a jumping around quality, that if I frame it in like, let my curiosity about things become an interest in how to make those things more of a uh, liberating practice, then having that problem in the first place is less of an issue. Do you see what I mean? So I think it's a kind of philosophy of practice that actually suits a lot of the contemporary world because my issues with attention are issues that a lot of people share. I mean, I'm just sort of an extreme form of what we're all dealing with our technology, with the kind of fracturing of attention span that's happening. So I think this is a way to unfracture it, to reseal that up, to work with where we're at. But in the working with where we're at, it's like you're slowly sealing out the whole landscape of your life to be more whole and more complete, more more awesome. I want to signal to folks because we've had some incoming interest in ADHD. So at some point, we'll take a deep dive into that. But in the meantime, I'm, I'd just be curious to get you to describe more examples of practice. You talked about going to sleep, communication, by the way, while you were talking about going to sleep, you, you said a protection practice. What is that? And what are the other kinds of practices that you would recommend or that you might have personally explored? Yeah. Okay. So this is a useful segue to so one of the ways I'm trying to put all this into action right now is I started Conscious Explorers Club like 10 years ago or something in Toronto. And that 
place was always a place of kind of like ecumenical exploration. Like we explored different practices. We got different teachers and experts to come in and we do all kinds of stuff there. And I'd always been interested in how to turn that into a podcast. So I've just done that. Like I spent a couple of years working out with my friend, Tasha Schumann. She also known as Tasha of the Amazon. She's this phenomenal practitioner and rapper, uh, hip, hip hop artist. And, and so the whole idea of this podcast is to basically give you examples of what you're just asked. We get different people on from different walks of life, often many meditation teachers, but also movement teachers, voice teachers, sleep experts, dreaming experts, hypnosis people, like you name it. And we get them to come on and then we get them to guide myself and Tasha and all the listeners through a kind of 12-minute practice. So we call it the Mind Bod Adventure Pod. So everyone goes together on this adventure in real time. And one of the ones that we got on was around sleep, this sleep expert who basically guided us in this really beautiful, his name is Charlie Morley, this really beautiful protection practice where as you're falling asleep, you visualize. So we're just kind of laying there and, and sort of half dozing on this podcast and everyone is invited to do that with us. And then we do this sort of visualization where you imagine, I don't know, a cedar tree around you or whatever's going to feel protective of you. Maybe you imagine the Incredible Hulk or the Buddha or just like you kind of imagine your protectors around you and you feel into this sort of sense of safety. And, and apparently this practice, I mean, it, it comes from a kind of deeper Tibetan tradition, but apparently it's very helpful for putting people at ease, helping them sleep better, helping them have less kind of uh, neurotic thoughts at sleep onset. But the idea of the practice is you can try this out for yourself in real time, that we're all doing it together. And then at the end of the guidance, there's a pause and then you kind of hear Tash and I trying to like reassemble our brains because sometimes we go to these really interesting places and then try to articulate, okay, why was that important? Where did we go? What are we learning here about the things I was just speaking about practice? What are we learning about how to bring this into our life? And the idea is that this becomes a forum for how to, you know, connect to practices and teachers and resources for sure. But really the top level is, it becomes a forum for how to become your own teacher, how to learn the skills you need to feel more empowered about all these different areas of your life. So, I mean, I'll say a little more of the podcast, but just to make it personal, this is what my day looks like. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh my God, I gotta go. My baby's crying. I gotta get the baby. I gotta do whatever. I'm like, okay, chill. And I take a second and I relax and I remember my parenting practice, which is to try to just let my child be a wondrous mystery to me and have equanimity and all that stuff. And I go and I get my guy. I go down, I have breakfast with my wife and our little guy. And I often find myself implementing like uh, communication, sort of best practice I've learned from talking to communications people around not starting in this reactive way, just like active listening, letting her really speak about what's going on in her life. And that just makes everything and vice versa. It just makes the whole vibe feel way better. And then I go into work and I often sit and do a small, a short kind of grounding practice before I start my writing. And that's helpful. And when I'm actually writing, I sometimes implement practices around workflow, around writing practices that I know, or I don't, I sit there instead of just 
overthinking everything I'm writing. I just sort of let it come out and what I'm doing right now in this rambling way. Maybe I need an editor. Okay, note to self, remember the editor is important. (laughs) But anyway, and then later in the afternoon, I might do a voice practice. I have a voice coach that I work with because I get this vocal fry thing happen. And she teaches me how to speak from different parts of where my body instead of just high up in the vocal palate, having more of a well range of things. Then I might do a Feldenkrais practice, which I love doing, just as a way to work with some of my injuries. And it kind of goes on from there. Maybe once in the day, I might see an actual specialist who helps me through something or once in a week. But most of the time, they're just things that I've learned that I implement. And it just makes getting through my day way better. What's Feldenkrais? It's very cool. It's Feldenkrais was a dude who, he was an Israeli kind of physicist, anatomist, kind of genius in all these areas who worked out a whole system, I guess you could say, of mindful movement. For himself, it started out with how to work with your injuries, but it became this whole inquiry into how to basically reverse engineer patterns of movement that aren't serving you. So you get really still and you go into some very simple movement like turning your head and then you start to make all these very tiny adjustments or additions to that movement. And what it does is it ends up helping you discover a path into that movement that's much more healthy for the body. And it's very interesting. I mean, that's just sort of my idiosyncratic take on it. I use some of those principles sometimes when I'm guiding actual meditation practice. All of these different practices, they just feed into this greater sense of awareness of all parts and a greater sense of agency around how to move through those parts with more skill and kind of care. Do you believe that having a seated meditation practice can, this is a loaded question because it's something I think I believe, which is that having a formal meditation practice of whatever length can really fuel all of these other practices because it's the dojo where you really are training your ability to be mindful, to be concentrated, to be calm, equanimous, et cetera, et cetera. Agree or disagree? Totally agree. And I even I would say that you don't have to do these all these other practices. It can happen that just through doing a simple seated practice, all those other benefits start to kind of happen in their own way. It's very interesting. And the thing about a seated practice is it's a place where you're not fooling yourself. You know, people like to say, oh, running is my practice. And running can be a practice. It can be many different practices. But running can also be a place where you're just endorphins are pumping in and you're sitting and thinking about your worries and you feel better after. But there are ways to turn the dials on a running practice to be a lot more powerful and effective, both physically and in terms of like mentally. So other practices where there's a lot going on, you can fool yourself in a way. Whereas in a practice where there's nothing going on, just your own thoughts, there's a deep training that happens there that is hard to approximate in any other context. What happens in life is there's always these pockets of unconsciousness. And you can get really good at one practice and still not touch those pockets of unconsciousness. So it's like we get this expertise in a particular silo. And the the things we're learning in that silo, they don't translate to other areas of our life. So that's why I think a life of being intentional about practice, being curious, okay, where are the pain points in my life or where is there some suffering or where is there a sense that part of my life I could be living more deeply, that becomes a cue to begin to explore practices within that domain. And I think that's really valuable. If we have areas of our lives where we're unconscious, 
by almost definitionally, we don't know that they're unconscious. So how can we wake up in these areas where we're asleep? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a great question. If you have a chicken in the egg. I mean, suffering is the great indicator light. It's the blinking light on your dashboard. But the thing is, sometimes we don't even realize we're suffering in some area. That's why I think a meditation practice is helpful because it just does give you a more baseline awareness of what's happening from moment to moment. And you can kind of notice, oh, okay, this area of my life, I'm, I'm really unhappy in this area of my life. I'm really dissatisfied with how I relate to my work colleagues or I'm, I have a lot of terrible sleeps or I know I have all this creative energy, but I don't feel like there's a way in which I'm actually activating it. Or there's so many problems in the world and I, I, I so want to be part of a meaningful solution, but I don't know what that looks like. All those are questions that can begin a kind of inquiry into what a more deliberate practice in that area might look like, which can then really open those things up. A couple of expressions from Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher, are coming to mind. One is that he talks about struggle as a feedback. It just gets similar to what you just said about suffering being like a warning light. And, and then I remember being on a retreat with him once and realizing if I'm suffering, there's something I'm not mindful of. Exactly. Yeah, one of the most simple questions I like to ask at the beginning of a sit is, what's coming between me and everything just being fine? You could say that there's a kind of baseline way of being in the world, super baseline, where you're just existing and you're available for what's happening and you're good. You don't need things to be any other way. And that's an experience you do get a lot in practice and you get in life. And so the question is, if you're not in that spot, well, then what's getting in the way? Because something then, there's some layer that's activated. And the process of kind of inquiring into that layer and being curious about it, I mean, it changes your life. <laughs> it's like, because you can go right through to the other side and realize, oh, there actually is no problem in this moment. I'm, I'm speaking about the moment. I'm thinking of the thing you do in the moment. I'm not speaking about the problems, out of the, the many problems of the world. In this moment, there is a way of being that is complete and centered and sane and available. And to reconnect to that is like this deep plunge that nourishes you to then go back in the world and begin to address all those issues. What do you personally do to connect to the centeredness and saneness that is always there, but it is obscured? I do something very similar to what I just said right there. I'll do it right now. I connect to my being. So the feeling of being, the sense of being, is more fundamental than any of the content in the being, if that makes sense. So it's like I pan back the camera. Like I was in a worry stream. And now I just come back to the sense of being a body, kind of like this body creature sitting in a chair. And now the thing I was worried about is just like one little small part of the tableau of this bigger thing. And that bigger, the being thing is the thing I was talking about. That's the sense of being is being is being. It's always the same being. So there's nothing that can be in the being part that can be improved on, only in the content. And so I just do that little reorientation and my worries usually just chain out after that. And then I just sit and exist and feels really freaking good. <laughs> <laughs> so the worries 
have trouble continuing to exist in the face of the brute fact that you exist right now? When you're paying attention to your worries, there isn't just the worry going by. There is often a kind of sense of fixation on the worry, attachment to it, grabbing on it, fighting with it. When you shift into noticing your worry from this bigger container, that's the part that drops away. It's like awareness gets so much broader that the energy that was in the fixation suddenly dissipates. So now there's just the worry that you're seeing, but you're seeing it as well as you're hearing a sound, as well as you're feeling your feet on the ground. There's a sense in which the hierarchy that you were previously imposing on it where the worry was the most important thing, that kind of goes away. Now there's just this wider expanse of, I mean, I don't even know if this sounds weird or what, this is just what I'm doing right now. And it's what I do in practice. And it's what a lot of teachers are pointing to in a way. And I think through practice, it just starts to happen more easily. You know, it's like something about it is more available. Coming up, Jeff moves through a variety of practices from koans to running to mindfulness of seeing. Also, he's going to hold forth about his theory that we all need to become our own teachers. That's right after this. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. I just finished a retreat of 
week or two ago. And I noticed myself doing this on this retreat and then also now in my practice back in the world of quotidian suffering, which is once in a while doing a thing that you've long urged me to do personally, dropping whatever meditation technique I'm doing and just being like, oh yeah, this is all just happening right now. Exactly. And there's a quality of accepting in that, that lets go of that fixation, lets go of the push-pull, the trying to change it. It's incredible. This life is incredible. This to take a breath right now and just to stop right in the middle of it. Like, How did he even get here? What is this? You know, feeling that question with your body, it's like everything else just quiets down. And then it's like your body's trying to feel its own being. And this is also a way to go deeper and deeper into practice. So this is a, the basis of inquiry. It's the basis of a Cohen practice. It's the basis of a kind of non-dual inquiry practice where you just pause and then you kind of feel into that. What is this thing that's happening right now? Who am I? You just, you kind of feel the question with your whole body for moments, the thoughts, quiet. You're not trying to get an intellectual answer. It's like there are all these frameworks in the mind that are operating. And when you do this, it's like you begin to sort of push at those frameworks. You begin to kind of erode them. All these ways in which our habits are trying to constrain us. And when you do something like that, it's like you're moving in the other direction. It's like, I don't even know why a human being wouldn't want to do this in their life. Because it just, there's this magical sense of the mysterious freaking weirdness of it all that starts to just float out into everything. And I know you know what I'm talking about because we talk about it all the time. Yeah, I can't tell if I'm just going soft or just getting weirder with time because none of this feels that weird to me anymore. Although I, it's not hard for me to interpolate back to the 35-year-old version of me who would have said, like, what drugs are you taking? But I will add one other thing that for me, for now at least, that seems to put me into this place that you're describing. And by the way, just to say, you, you said it's hard to put words to this. Yes, it really is. It is like that old joke. It's a little bit like, you know, dancing about architecture. It's very hard to talk about mysticism. One other thing that kind of puts me up against the just overwhelming reality of my existence is being mindful of seeing. Oh, yeah, totally. Because that is a thing that many of us who do mindfulness, you can bring awareness to the body moving, you can bring awareness to sounds, to, to the food you're tasting. But seeing, I don't know, for one reason or another, seeing is something that we take for granted, I think, on an even deeper level. So tuning into the seeing and the weirdness of taking in the world, for me, it helps erode the membrane between my ego and the larger world. Yeah, me too. I think it's because we're so habituated to walking around with our eyes open, thinking about our problems, worrying about our stuff. So we're only half seeing. We think we're fully seeing, but we're only half seeing because there's this layer of other stuff that's kind of coming in between it. So the deliberate practice of truly seeing can be in incredibly liberating. And in the same vein, I do often do a practice of just, it's like, I try to see without knowing that I'm seeing, if that makes sense. Like, I'm knowing I'm seeing, but I'm not like going, oh, that's a tree I'm looking at. Oh, that's a tree. What are trees? It's just like seeing. I'm letting the tree just be itself. And it's like, you slowly start to kind of erode the label around tree. 
and it just starts to kind of get more shimmery and interesting. And then things start to get more beautiful looking. It's like looking at a picture of something a photographer has taken. They've framed even something that look is potentially banal. The way it's been seen and framed suddenly lets you see it as an existential true thing in the world. There's like this feeling of like, oh yeah, barns exist or garbage cans exist or whatever it is they took a picture of. And in the same way, you get this sense of like, oh, wow, just the looking like that. So this is a great practice for people to try out. Try to walk around and just remind yourself to see. And then you'll notice you get kind of floating off. You start going into thinking and you're thinking about the thing you're seeing and then you just remind yourself, okay, come back to seeing. And just, it can be a wonderful practice for coming back to the world and eroding just the things you said. Yeah, this non-conceptual seeing, which again, is very hard to describe in words. The aforementioned Joseph once described it as kind of, I think this is what he was talking about, but he used this analogy about like the difference between looking out the window at something and opening the window and looking at it with nothing intermediating it. Oh, beautiful. I've thought about that quite a bit. I don't want to let too much time elapse. There are a couple of things you said that I think might be helpful to either explain or unpack. One of those, you talked about Cohen practice. I grew up with a friend named Seth Cohen, one of my best friends to this day. <laughs> and you're not talking about Seth Cohen. You're talking about what might be pronounced as koans or K-O-A-N. It's a Zen type of practice. Can you describe it just for people who might have never heard of it before? Yeah. Well, there's different ways to do koan practice, but the kind of classic thing is you're asking this question that has no intellectual answer. So it's like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? The famous one, or what was your original face before you were born, or something like that. And the idea is that you're just posing this kind of impossible question, because what you're interested in is the open feeling of not knowing. You try to connect to a kind of yearning or wonderment in the question, really genuinely not knowing. What is, you don't know, it's like you, you pose the question and you kind of find this open-ended, not know yearning quality in the asking. And activating that in your experience, it somehow has this effect of starting to erode some of those structures. So it can be a way into these deep breakthrough moments of practice, these sort of Ken shows that they would call within Zen, like where you literally are, as you keep it up, as you keep it up, it's like it builds up a kind of pressure, a kind of bogglement pressure that builds and builds. And there can be this sudden kind of breakthrough experience. And that's one of the ways it can work. Those breakthrough type experiences, it's so interesting because they happen in so many different ways. They can happen through a kind of koan yearning quality. They can happen through a more vipassana way where you're just getting super, super clear about your moment to moment experience. And it's like you start to see between the pixels and there can be this figure ground kind of reversal, this kind of breakthrough. Or they can happen in a backing up way, like in a more self-inquiry way, like, who am I? Who am I? It's so fascinating to me that all of these very different, ostensibly different practices can have these uh, similar effect of kind of changing how we experience self and world. And that's just one way, one stream of practice that's used within the Rinzai Zen tradition. Another thing you mentioned earlier was that it's possible to turn running into something that you would describe as a practice. So how would we do that? Yeah, so first the question is, what do you want to get out of your running? Like maybe you just want the good physical health, which is terrific. <laughs> That's enough already. Maybe you also like enjoy the feeling of kind of the endorphins and there's a sense of really getting a break from things. And you can have that at the same time. I mean, I think to begin to really deepen the practice of running to make it both 
not just a good physical practice, but a true kind of psycho-spiritual cleansing, I think the first thing to do is to get deliberate about what you're paying attention to. So you make an, in, an intention at the beginning of the practice. You know what? I'm not going to just sit here and think about my worries as I run. I'm actually going to pay attention to the feeling of the breath in the body or the sense of movement and energy in the body, or maybe I'm going to pay attention to the soundscape moving around me. So you make this decision to first do that. And that's what's going to help really give you a break from your worries. And that's just the beginning. And that's like the concentration piece. Then I'd say you could kind of weave in this equanimity piece. This is kind of a little harder to describe, but it's like this piece of not fighting with yourself. So how can I kind of bring a sense of almost smoothness in the running, like in the running itself, but in the way I'm relating to my own body? How can I run in a way where I kind of get out of my own way, <laughs> that makes sense, where I so let go of myself, there's just the running. There's no runner. You know, and actually any experienced runner will go, I know what you're talking about, because I've been to that place, like this place where you start to get in the zone and you let go of yourself. And so there's a way to be almost deliberate about that. It still might be mysterious when it lands. You can't control exactly when the zone will happen or when those things will happen, but the more you're intentional about really giving yourself over to the practice entirely, then it can become this even deeper exploration. Do you have to take your headphones out for this? Because I like to listen to music, but that might get in the way. Well, you could use the music as one of your objects that you're listening to. I mean, I think it depends on the person. You have to ask yourself the question. If you listen to music in the background, it might totally support exactly what I'm saying, or it might be a distraction. It's always like that. You have to kind of explore it for yourself. I mean, that's what it means to kind of be your own teacher. You're interested in this question of how to care for yourself and other people, and you're paying attention to what you're learning and making changes according to what you discover. Say more about that phrase, be your own teacher. Is that connected to your idea of democratizing mental health? Yeah, big time. So, so basically, the world is very intense right now. There are a ton of environmental challenges and technology challenges and social justice challenges, and we need to show up for these challenges. And one of the challenges out there are these incredible challenges around mental and emotional health, where you're seeing like shooting rates of depression. And I mean, it goes on and on. So I think one of the ways to respond to that is making good practice more accessible to more people and making practice support structures and other kinds of support structures more accessible. That is what I mean by the democratization of mental health. And part of that is not waiting for the expert. A lot of us have this idea that you get to be born in life and then just coast. And then if something goes wrong in terms of mental health, then you got to go to an expert to get fixed. But that's the bad old world. The, the world we're in now is that we don't have that luxury and it didn't work anyway. It's like you kind of have to be interested in caring for yourself from the get-go and recognize that your own mental health is something that needs to be kind of cared for and stewarded along with your physical health. And so that's what I mean about being your own teacher. It's sort of like being interested for yourself in how this stuff works and then sharing what you're learning, sharing what you're learning with your friends so that's sort of like a horizontal peer-to-peer -peer transmission. And then while there's a place for experts in that, absolutely, it's you can't depend on them only. It's about being in a place where we can share practice with each other, talk with each other about practice and 
that's how the resources are going to get out there. That's how the best practices are going to get out there. And that's what the podcast that I was talking about earlier is about too. It's about cultivating this new zeitgeist of horizontal teaching <laughs> and practice sharing. But I guess what comes to my mind when I hear you say, be your own teacher is, it's really helpful to have an expert. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, part of being your own teacher is knowing when you need to go to someone who's got more expertise than you. And that's what I mean about all these different practice areas. Go to someone who's got some expertise in that, learn from them, and then integrate what their responses are, and then pass it on, however imperfectly. That's what I mean. So yeah, part of being your own teacher is knowing when to consult the experts. <laughs> One of the other aspects of turning your whole life into a practice that you've talked about is making it social. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying about the peer-to-peer -peer part of it. First of all, sharing about your mental health challenges is itself a practice. It in, in and of itself, it makes life better. It helps you not only connect to resources, but it helps you get clear about what it is you're going on. It helps you find common cause. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's really valuable. Um, and I think being in a practice group with other people who are doing that, who are sharing and trying to talk about their insights, it's like it, it accelerates the learning. Because someone saying out loud or trying to share about a struggle or, or an insight they had, it helps you see things that are happening in your experience. That's why we say the community is the teacher at the, at the Conscious Explorers Club. Every time someone says something real about what's going on in their experience, it provides an opening for us to also learn something. So you're like, it's kind of like the learning happens as a group and it's very powerful. But even deeper than that, there's a way in which you start to feel more empowered to be able to share what you're learning with other people, that you don't have to be this perfect, super experienced guide to tell someone about a practice that you do or to even guide someone in a few-minute simple breath practice, and that the world's problems are urgent enough that we don't have time to wait until we come across the path of a great teacher to help us do that, that we can be kind of teachers for each other, for lack of a better word, and that can help accelerate the learning and make sure it kind of gets to where it needs to get. Let me raise two possible pitfalls here. One is you talked about sharing and I wonder, are there best practices there that might help you avoid oversharing? And the second is, while I agree with you on everything, one of the many benefits of talking to somebody who's genuinely an expert is that when difficulties arise, they can give you good guidance that a civilian cannot. And practice can be treacherous at times. And you don't want an amateur giving you advice, you know, if you've wandered into a difficult part of your mind. So you take that in whatever order you want. Yeah. Well, I'll take the second one first because it's totally fair comment. And I totally agree. That's why I'm saying you need the experts as well. But I guess I would ask a question to you and really think about it. What is more dangerous to lead a practice badly or in an amateur way or to be guided in an amateur way in a practice or to not have access to practice at all in the big picture? What is the greater danger? Well, for sure, it's the latter. The, for sure, the greater, in my opinion, the greater danger is not having access to these technologies, these inner technologies. I just think perhaps it's about if you're going to lead people in practice and you you know, haven't done the many years of training that people like you do, 
just to have some humility and a spirit of what a caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware, just to be honest about what your level of experience really is. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's the main thing. That's the main advice I give to people around sharing practice is what you just said there. It's about not pretending to know anything you don't know. And also, it is important. I think if you're going to share practice in any actual setting where you're going to be guiding meditation to understand the basics of trauma-informed mindfulness, there's no question. So I could not agree more with that and also having access to all the professional teachers. But I'm saying in the context of friend sees another friend having a really hard time and the other friend is like, I'm at the end of my rope, to be able to say to them, okay, well, listen, I'm not an expert meditation teacher at all. I'm not even an amateur meditation teacher. I just am someone who does this occasionally, but what helps me in this situation is to sit down and take a few breaths and kind of orient my attention maybe to my hands or feel my feet on the ground and to be able to just help your friend with a few tips in the moment. I think every human being should want to or know how to do that for another. And for that, you don't need to spend four years in a Dharma teacher training program. And I think that's common sense, what I'm saying. Yes. And so uh, on the social tip, I've been dining out on my own mental health struggles for years, so I'm not casting any aspersions here, but I have been, I think, justifiably accused at times of oversharing. And so how do we draw the line between being open and vulnerable? Well, it's a practice, <laughs> like everything else. And it's actually a beautiful equanimity practice. Okay, when I get present and I make myself available this in this situation, what feels appropriate. I'm going to share about something that happened to me, but you get a sense of when you've already moved into the space of oversharing. It's just a feeling thing. And are you actually hearing what this other person then is saying? Or are you sitting in your own head thinking about your own stuff and you can't wait to jump back in with more reports of your experience? It's a communications of practice. Sharing is a practice. Staying with this idea of community, you had a beautiful phrase that you used you may not even remember using it with my colleague, Gabrielle, when she talked to you before this interview. You said, it's all one nervous system. Yeah, yeah, this is the big picture. But it's super valuable framework. This is the world I want to live in. And I'll tell you what that means for me in my life right now and then what I mean by the big picture. So I have mental health challenges. The ADHD, bipolar Diagnosis too, which is they're both regulation issues, attention regulation, the other one's sort of energy <laughs> mood regulation. Because I am the way I am, there are certain things that I'm really good at, and there are certain things that I'm not good at. So within my family, it's useful to think of my family as and my community, right? My immediate community of people who are like extended family as a single nervous system meaning we distribute functions around that nervous system based on the parts of the nervous system that are good at doing that thing. Like my executive functions are not very good you know, when it comes to certain kinds of planning and whatever it is. But my wife is pretty good at that. So she's more on that tip for us. I'm really good at X. She's better at that. And then there's certain things that neither of us are good at. So we know when it comes to taking care of our little guy, that sometimes we need to ask for other help. And in turn, having someone else come in, like my sister or certain kinds of contexts or someone else. And, and in turn, similarly in my community, there are 
friends of mine who are good at something but not so good at another thing, but in that other thing I happen to be good at. So then I can step in and kind of help with that. And this is where we're getting more to the bigger picture. The more we try to live that way within our family, within our communities, within our larger world, I think the better the world will be. So not each of us is not trying to do everything all the time, but that we're allowed to kind of specialize. And we're also recognizing that we're here to help support other people in that way too. Do you see what I mean? If everyone had an ethic of like being clear about what their specialty was, offering it out into the larger framework of their community or world, but then also letting themselves receive the support for the places where they're not as strong, then that's a kind of interconnected world of service and activation that I want to live in. That's what I mean by that. Coming up, Jeff talks about what it's like to practice with ADHD. That's right after this. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You talk a lot about in, I think, very helpful ways about impulse control and executive function. And I actually think maybe it's a challenge for you, but it's also a strength because it's part of what makes you so funny and fun to be around. As part of this, you've described, as you already have in this conversation, your challenges specifically with ADHD. And I mentioned earlier, we've had some folks reach out to us and ask us to you know, explore this a little bit more on the show. So what kind of practices are helpful for you given your attention regulation struggles? Yeah, great question. Well, one is what I said before, making my ADHD a virtue, letting 
everything be a practice. That has helped me. Compassion practices have been really important because when you have ADHD, you, you get into this pattern of letting a lot of people down because you overcommit because you're not good at figuring out what you need to get done in the right order and all that. So self-compassion practices are super valuable. Not all ADHD people are the same. There's all kinds of subtypes of ADHD. If you do have an ADHD diagnosis, you kind of have to explore a few different meditation practices to see what clicks. Some folks find typical concentration practices really hard for the obvious reasons, but others have a kind of hyper focus so they can get into, say, a concentration practice, and that actually can be good medicine for them. However, you have to learn how to shave off the fixation part of the hyperfocus, if that makes sense. Like, it's like you're focusing, your life depends on it, because it does depend on it, because you've so many times let people down by having your attention go all over the place. So you're actually holding on to your attention in this desperate way. So you got to let go of the desperateness. So there's a learning there. I think non-dual practices are very helpful for ADHD folk, meaning coming back to just present moment awareness, because you're always coming back there anyway if you're ADHD because you're just popping back out of whatever the thing that you were supposed to be committed to. You're like, oh, here again. You kind of forget where you were. And so you can make a virtue of that. Normally when you're ADHD, you pop back into the present moment and you're like, and you pop back full of fear and loathing around what you just forgot and what you think you should have been doing. But if you can pop back into the present moment and not activate that particular fear and loathing circuit, then you're in the refreshment of the present moment. And this is a whole space of profound insight. What is this? present moment awareness. Who am I? That can be a very profound direction of inquiry for anybody. But the point of this is it doesn't matter what your neuro unique situation is. We're all neuro atypical to a degree. And your diversity here can actually be a virtue in the sense that it almost always shows that you have an area of competency in some domain that can then become a place that you really zoom in deep on. You use to bootstrap a deeper practice. And then you can also do balancing practices to try to even that out a bit. But that's kind of what I have learned through this, that every mental health challenge, you could say, is also a kind of window into a particular style of practice or a particular direction of inquiry. Is one potential pitfall of turning everything into a practice that you're just jumping around too much and you're, okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why understanding what's unique to all that is valuable. What's unique to all of it is it's awareness. It's opening to what's here. It's seeing what's here. That is the glue that binds all of these. Where are you at now with your challenges around attention regulation and how have these practices helped? How have they not helped? Like they've helped massively, <laughs> like humongously. If I just look at my life right now, my suffering is a fraction of what it used to be, a fraction. I just don't get into the suffering loops in the same way. First of all, I have compassion for my own attentional style, so I don't let that be. The fact that I jump around, I'm just like, I try to just let it, the virtue of it be there, and and I try to create structure in my life that makes it okay for me to be like that. And I'm very clear and transparent with my friends and family. That's who I am. So I feel like the people who are in my life accept that. And I still do shamatha type practices that I find help make me more regulated. So that's the ADHD. The H part, the hyper part, which is related to the hypomania and the ups and downs, that's really changed too. Because I have so much more awareness when these start. I could feel the very beginning of these endogenous shifts that want to lead me into 
a hypomanic place and I can come off that and let it just play out without having to feed it. When I know what to do, I can find structure. I'll go to sleep earlier. Or I know I need to exercise now. So I have these like structures in place. And similarly, when I'm going down in the other direction, I have reframings I can do where I'm like, okay, that's just part of how this goes. And actually, can I experience this low as this kind of like a nurturing thing? Like my body's going here anyway, so can I let myself be in the dark here? If you know what I mean. So I don't even know that. I think I'd be alive, really, if I didn't have these practices to smooth all this out. And of course, it gives you so much compassion for everyone's dealing with versions of this. And, and then that also is great. You know, just feeling all this compassion for humanity makes you feel really connected to people. And that's just a great mediator of your suffering. <laughs> it seems to me that what I just heard you describe is a kind of walking the walk on your advice to be your own teacher. It reminds me of something that Chris Germer, the academic who spends a lot of time studying self-compassion said, which is, he said that the central mantra, the central rallying cry, the central question that somebody who practices self-compassion should be asking themselves frequently is, what do I need right now? Yeah, absolutely. What do I need right now? What does the world need right now? Balancing that. What do I need right now? Change or accept? What does the world need right now? Change or accept? That's the grid. Around and around. And then eventually, there's this uh, sense in which it just feels like even those questions integrate. And there's just this being available for things and the right response seeming to come. Everyone says that. It's the weirdest thing. It used to drive me crazy. What do you mean? What does that mean? It's just like so, like, it's just so annoying. It sounds like just some Zen riddle. But I think it just means you're not overthinking stuff. Right. I mean, the Zen folks talk a lot about freshness and spontaneity. And I think it goes back to uh, this Tibetan phrase that I love about uh, the point of practice being to clear away and bring forth. If you just can clear away the junk, then the good stuff underneath uh, this availability can shine forth. Totally. What's your practice like right now? I just went on this retreat. By the time we post this, I guess it'll be a couple of weeks ago up at the Insight Meditation Society with Joseph. And I was struggling a little bit to integrate two kinds of practices. One is the stricter, more programmatic style of retreat where you've got a, a very strict schedule. You're sitting, walking, sitting, walking, lunch, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, dinner. And uh, a style of practice that I learned from Alexis Santos and other like you as a teacher on the 10% Happier app. And his teacher is a Burmese guy named Sayadaw Utejaniya. And Tejaniya's style is really like, uh, there's no schedule, or maybe there's like a few things to anchor the schedule, but you're really supposed to listen to your intuition about, am I sitting now? Am I walking now? Am I like, or, or maybe even reading a book or it's complete bedlam. You can even check your phone. It's really sort of very unstructured. I was trying to combine those two a little bit and I got confused. And at one point, Joseph was like, you're being ridiculous. You know, it's like, it's all the same thing. You know, it's all just waking up. And that's been really helpful for me. My mind rebels against my own tendency to push too hard to, you know, for I had a whole long period of time where I was meditating two hours a day. It was very militant. And now I don't really time my practice, but as a result, I look forward to it a lot more. And, and so I just naturally find spots in the day without any 
external or internal pressure to sit and meditate. Yeah, it feels more natural. And so what am I actually doing? I often start with a little bit of uh, loving kindness practice, which is very good to settle the mind, at least for me, and then just open up to a more open awareness. And there's a little question that Alexis's teacher, Tejaniya, tells people to ask as their practice. Instead of focusing on the breath or noting everything that arises, just ask yourself, are you aware? And then when you drift away, you ask yourself that again. The analogy they use is like pushing a kid on a swing. You push and then the kid goes out and then you push again. But after a while, you don't have to push as often. I often joke that it's like when I push my kid on the swing, sometimes when he returns to me, he farts in my face. And so that's what like waking up can feel like at some times, especially at the beginning of a retreat. But anyway, I said a whole lot there. I wasn't planning to, but I'll see if you have any reaction. Well, I think it's good for people to hear. It's good just to be a regular person talking about where you are in your practice and what you're doing. And I think it's a good practice. I mean, it's amazing to me that awareness is a kind of solvent. It just dissolves everything after a while you just sit if you just sit and just be aware eventually everything will dissolve but we don't stay there that's the thing and uh, so we have other ways to dissolve what's in the way but you could just sit and be aware and eventually the process of living things will come up that in the awareness you notice and that whole approach kind of just trusts it has faith in awareness to notice the thing at the right time as opposed to specific practices which are deliberately intended to help generate insight about a specific thing and bring it up. But there's the bare bone is just beating the awareness. And I think it's a beautiful practice. And a loving kindness too. It's just, you can't do enough of that. I do the, I'll start with just, I just put my hand on my chest because there's something about touch that's just very settling. It's like the animal body, that's what it, it wants. It doesn't know about awakening any of those things, it is awake, <laughs> but it knows what touches, you know, or that your hand on your own knee, you know, or it's just, boom, that simple gesture. You see when you're a parent, just the power of it. You know, the, this touch thing, Kristen Neff talks about it. She's kind of the godmother of self-compassion research. And she talks about putting your hand on your heart or your chest, or whatever it is kind of a hacking into the mammalian care system. Mammals need to care for our young. And obviously, as everybody knows, in order to keep the DNA alive for through the generations. And when I first heard people talk about rubbing your chest or putting your hand on your heart, because I am, as my son often calls me, uh, a jerk face, I <laughs> completely rejected it. But now I do it on the regular. And it's really, I mean, my experience, really helpful. And there's data to suggest that it is. I would also say about that, that it's incredibly empowering because what's happening, like when you put a hand on your chest or whatever your version of settling the nervous system, it's like you settle and you start to feel your ground underneath you. And now you can stand up from inside your own resources without having to reach outside of yourself. So there's something very, it's very powerful to know how to do that. Yeah. I mean, I use that all the time. I use that in the middle of the night when my guy's wailing. And I'm just like, oh, how do I, how do I deal with this situation? I'm like just losing my mind days since we've slept. And it's like three in the morning or something. And it's like, okay, I'll just put the hand on my chest and go settle down, buddy. 
<laughs> and then it's like, I feel the whole nervous system go, boom, 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 boom. And now from that place, now I can comfort them. But before, it was like we were just lost together. Well said. Before I let you go, let's just go back to the MindBod adventure pod. You guys have done and are doing so many different kinds of practices, art, hypnosis, voice, movement, sleeping, dreaming. Is there anything you wouldn't do? Well, Dan, I would say there are two primary domains that we won't do. One, I won't be doing any sex practices on air. <laughs> thank, and you can, and your listeners can thank me for that. No, but we probably <laughs> will talk about Tantra and different kinds of breathing related stuff. But the other thing is, you know, we had this idea back in the day when we were kind of just, I mean, I've known Tantra for ages. We've been assing around in the kind of party scene before we were meditators, you know. I mean, we were actually both meditators then too. But there was an, a long time where it was kind of an overlap of going to dance parties. And so we used to have this idea that it would be fun to do a podcast where we take a different drug and then just real time narrate the experience of the drug kicking in, thinking that would be kind of fun to do. However, that won't be happening because uh, I don't really do any of that anymore. And I'm a dad and it's probably illegal and especially in the States. And who knows, for whatever reason, it's just not good sense. But that would be kind of fun, I think. I'll lead some young types, some younger folks to do that. And it's available everywhere? Yeah, totally. iTunes, uh, Spotify, all the spots. And yeah, we're just curious what people think of it. So listen to it. And if you like it, write a review or whatever, subscribe. And I mean, it's all a labor of love. We did it all kind of on our own. So we're hoping that if it gets enough support and people like it enough, then there'll be a way to, for us to keep going with it because we have a zillion ideas and it's very joyful to do it. Yes, and she's great. Anything else you got going on? Retreats or writings that you're putting out into the world that uh, people might want to access? Well, uh, the stuff I do at 10% Happier, of course. I do stuff for Calm. I have my Do Nothing project on Sunday night, which is a free YouTube live meditation, super pared down. There's a really great community of people who join me for that, and anyone can do that. And then I guess the big picture is I'm just... I appreciate the opportunity to blab in this kind of directionless way about practice. I am trying to synthesize all of it into some kind of coherent work that just sort of lays out a kind of philosophy of practice, you know, like what is practice, how it connects to the deep end of the transformations that we hear, but also just the, the mundane end of just like living a more thoughtful life in all these areas. So I'm always interested in other people's thoughts on this, and I'm just writing this book about that. So that's what's going on with me. I'm looking forward to that book, and you're not giving yourself credit. You're way more coherent in this conversation than you might think. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Appreciate it. Always great. Always great to hang out, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Jeff. Always great to talk to him. Go check out his new show, the Consciousness Explorers Podcast or the Mind Bod Adventure Pod. Also, before I go, just want to thank everybody who works so hard to make this show a reality two and a half times a week. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wirtel, and Jen Poyant, and Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. 
Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.